It was me. I hope I deserve this. Truly, I do. I hope I'm wrong. Goodbye, old friend. Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen, and I haven't read most of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson. I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. Welcome to the show. What we're going to do here today on this podcast, as usual, is recap Game of Thrones this week. Today we'll be recapping Season 8, Episode 5, called The Bells. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. Now, including this episode of the show, three episodes of A Cast of Kings remain. We're going to recap uh, this episode, The Bells. Next week, we're going to be recapping the season or and series finale of the show. Uh, and then the week after that, we were lucky enough to get some sponsors. And so we're going to be doing one additional episode that is going to be kind of a retrospective episode, looking back on the show, looking back on the podcast, and kind of trying to piece together what it all meant for us. Um, so that's kind of like the the roadmap for the rest of the podcast. And I just want to let people know kind of what the plan is for the next few weeks. Jonah Robinson, I think uh, you also have some announcements of what's happening the next few weeks, right? Yeah. Um, well, I was going to announce that we're doing a live show. Storm Spoilers is another podcast that I do. We're doing like a big live show, sort of, I've been calling it group therapy meeting in San Francisco after the finale, the Monday <laughs> after the finale. Uh, but we sold out today. So uh, you can't come to that. Sorry, unless you're already coming. Um, but we will probably have more live shows in the future uh, because that podcast, Storm Spoilers, uh, is Starting this week, we're launching a Lost rewatch project. So uh, the TV show Lost, the ABC series Lost, uh, that um, you know so many people watched but haven't watched since it was on, or there's a bunch of people who never watched it uh, who want to watch it for the first time. So we're doing a rewatch series that's friendly to both. Uh, if you're familiar with that other podcast I do, we have two sections of the podcast. One is spoiler-free, one has spoilers. So we're considered quote-unquote spoilers anything of the future episodes on Lost, and then we'll be watching it week by week going through. We just thought it was a really good idea, uh, really good time to revisit Lost and reconsider sort of the legacy of a show that had a divisive ending. You know mm. what I mean? A, a how, somewhat... how would that possibly relate to Game of Thrones in any way, Joanna? <laughs> somewhat topical. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so that's, that's something we're doing. If you go to stormspoilers.com, you can sort of find out more info on that. But that is something I'm really excited that we're doing, that we're launching this week. It's sort of like, I don't know, to help fill the hole in our hearts that is upcoming when Game of Thrones leaves and also just a helpful distraction from some of the heated discourse that's been happening uh around game of thrones so come back to the island with us there you go speaking of discourse a lot of people emailed us uh last week at uh, a cast of kings at gmail.com a lot of people uh sending corrections sometimes right like we we make mistakes extremely us? rarely on us? the podcast no yeah i mean <laughs> uh i, I mean I'll, I'll tell you one mistake that wasn't a mistake as it was uh was that l last week we talked about uh, the coffee cup. A lot of people 
loved uh, us talking about that for 20 minutes. And by loved, I mean really didn't like. Uh, and trust me, we won't talk about it for that long this week. I do want to mention that the coffee cup was removed uh, from the episode really quickly, like within hours, if not days, uh, which kind of, to me, implies that it was a mistake all along for those of you who were conspiracy theorists thinking it was on purpose, uh, but did want to call out that the cup has been removed. So you will no longer be able to see it on video on demand uh, and on home video in, I think, most places. Uh, another thing that people uh, wrote into correct from last week's episode was I had this whole speech last week about Brienne and how impactful it was uh, that she showed emotion when Jamie left, and like that, that was very. You, you never saw her show emotion, and I felt like if you're gonna show her doing that, you need to. You as the show need to honor that, uh, and I don't know that the show did a good job of that. I did get an email from Paul, who writes in to a cast of kings at gmail.com, uh, saying, "I listened to your season." Eight episode four recap in which Dave mentioned the Brienne weeping and being emotional was super out of character. Um, having recently started a rewatch of the show from season one, I'm sorry to say, Dave, but you couldn't be more wrong. Brienne uh, has had a major show direction uh, emotion directly in the show. Uh, part of the problem with having such a long series, I think we forget about things that have happened in the past, especially as show writers have problems with character development as they leave the source notes of the books. Uh, I think if you think back, Dave, you may remember a blubbering Brienne who after the death of Stannis was so overcome with weeping that Catelyn practically had to shake her and say, get a hold of yourself. You can't avenge him if they kill you. And if you if we don't leave, they will. So end quote there. Uh, I think Zachary's talking about the death of Renly, right? Uh, Renly was the person who she was really upset about. Is that right? Yeah, Renly yeah. Baratheon. Renly Baratheon, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, but it is true that when Renly died, uh, Brienne was very upset. I do still stand by the the statement that she has shown emotion fairly rarely throughout the course of the series. It's not like she never has. Uh, and that like when, when you have a character like that who, in my opinion, comes off as very stoic and very composed and has a great deal of equanimity, uh, that when that character breaks down, that is a powerful weapon that you can use um, from an emotional standpoint if you're making the show. So, uh, but you know, fair enough. Uh, good correction. Uh, I stand corrected. We also got an email from uh, Rain, who writes into a cast of kings gmail.com, uh, commenting on Joanna Robinson's discussion of uh, race and Missandei and how this show. Uh, used Missandei to uh, use Missandei's death to motivate other characters. And this email comes into a cast of kings at gmail.com. She writes, uh, I don't know where to start, but I have a huge problem with Joanna's take towards the end of the podcast. First, I am a woman of color and I often see the show through that lens, but uh, is the take I'm hearing on the podcast really in favor of tokenism? Really? Grey Worm and Missandei represent all people of color? No. Here are things that bother me. The Dothraki, people of color, being savage rapists until white savior Danny comes in to change their ways. Never mind using their savage violence to advance their own, uh, her own cause. The Unsullied, more people of color, being so grateful to the white savior Danny uh, that they blindly follow her and her commands like robots because they are so grateful to the new master. The scene where white savior Danny goes savior body surfing over a crowd of people of color, calling her mother or whatever, but what bothers me most is the mostly white audience and the largely white Game of Thrones contributors love Grey Worm, Masande, the Unsullied, and Dothraki, not for who they are, 
but because they are unquestioningly devoted to the Savior. When Masande dies, it's not poor Grey Worm, the, per- the person closest to her. You all are saying poor Danny. The per- person of color on the show, uh, the people of color on the show, have no original thoughts, no autonomy. All that advise, contradict, or stand up to Danny are white. And the audience, like Danny, is so trained to expect worship that they call Northerners ungrateful for wanting to be led by their own, desiring freedom, and wanting a say in who leads them. What doesn't bother me? The woman of color actually being part of this violent story like everyone else, end quote. Uh, so I thought that was uh, an interesting response to what you were saying last week, and that, that um Maybe Masande's death didn't bother this this person, but like that there are many other ways that the show treats race that are more bothersome. Uh, the actress who played Masande actually gave an interview discussing this. Did she not, John Robinson? Yeah, she spoke to Entertainment Weekly. Um, not their usual correspondent, actually, but uh, Pia Sinha Roy, so a woman of color, uh, sort of spoke to her about this. Um, question like you know natalie emmanuel basically said and she had written this already on her inner on her instagram she had said you know like i hadn't really considered the larger picture of what masande's death would mean to people um and by that i infer and i could be wrong but i infer like she means like people of color looking for representation on the show right mm-hmm. um and she said she in this interview she said to be honest with you when i read the script for it i was like not surprised that she died because i had been expecting it for a really long time so many people die on that show and i guess i don't think I was any safer than anyone else in that respect, but I'm fully aware and engaged in the conversation of representation because I am the only woman of color in the show that has been there, but has been on there regularly for many seasons. Um, and then she talks about, um, she says it's safe to say that Graham of Thrones has been under criticism for their lack of representation. And the truth of it is that Missandei and Graham have represented so many people because there's only two of them. So this is a conversation going forward about when you're casting shows like this, that you are inclusive in your casting. I knew what it meant, that she was there, I know what it means that I'm existing in the spaces that I am because when I was growing up, I didn't see people like me. But it wasn't until she was gone that I really felt what it truly, really, truly meant until I saw the outcry and outpouring of love and outrage and upset about it. I really understood what it meant. So I'm, I, we wanted to like sort of, uh, you know, read this email and also read Natalie's um, comments on, on the same subject. Mostly, I feel like anyone should feel however they want about this. <laughs> like I'm right. not here to tell anyone how they should feel about it. So that's my stance of it. I think it's been interesting for me to look at how differently people respond to art in the last few weeks. Right. And I think like, uh, that's one thing I I've personally been trying to work on is this idea that like, uh, th- there are very few interpretations of art that are, uh, plain wrong or invalid. I think a really uh, a good example that I can come up with that hit my Twitter timeline over the last few weeks is, uh, let's just say, in Avengers Endgame, there's a character who gains a lot of weight. And without, uh, without revealing who that is or what the implications are like, there's a lot of people who thought that the movie was fat shaming in that movie. And then there's other people who are like, wow, I feel seen by like this depiction of this overweight character in that movie. And I think it's just very possible that like both are true, you know, that, that things are true for different people, you know, that you, you have, you view art through your own lens and that like, we shouldn't necessarily be trying to like stifle one viewpoint or the other. And that like, uh, everyone has a deeply personal interpretation, uh, that they bring to, uh, work that is as widely seen and discussed like this. So, 
uh, I agree with you, Joanna. Like when it comes to people's interpretations of uh, stuff in this show, kind of live and let live, as it were. Uh, on that note, this is an email that comes in from Heather, who writes into a cast of kings at gmail.com, uh, commenting on our remarks about the Santa storyline last week. Uh, and she writes here, a uh, quote, I'm sorely disappointed in the analysis of the conversation between the Hound and Sansa in episode four. As a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, I can assure you that how Sansa feels is precisely how I feel. And I'm grateful for the writers for portraying her struggle in that way. I understand it might not be the most feminist standpoint, but there is sound reason for her specific dialogue. As I said, I'm a, I'm a survivor and it was people I should have been able to trust. When I became an adult, it took me many years to come to terms with what happened. But the two things that anchor me in happiness in this world is that it was part of what formed the person I am. And I really like that person. I know it might seem as though she's celebrating it. She's not. She's doing the most healthy of things and accepting it. There simply is no time travel. It can't be fixed. And so there's no reason to dwell on what could have been. She's communicating to the Hound that it's past, and she does not hold a grudge toward him, and he should not hold one toward himself. She's taking lemons and making effing lemonade. As a society, we do this all the time. We tell our friends, our kids, our students to do this. I know it's disappointing, but this is what we've got, so we've got to make the best of it. Horrific acts of abuse are no better. They have no better solution. I am so stoked to see Sansa rise from the ashes, embrace what has made her so, and be a strong woman and not letting it destroy her. Regarding Ramsay's death, I wonder what you would suggest otherwise. This is not a society where she'll call the police, he'll get a fair but just trial, and get the electric chair for his heinous acts. This is a medieval setting during a time of war. Sansa has been witness to Ramsay being more evil than Joffrey. Ramsay has not one single redeeming quality. At least for Joffrey, one could argue a better parenting hand in the early seasons and books might have changed his trajectory. I feel that the Sansa method was just for his delighting cruelty and he would have been sentenced to death anyway. I'm certain that it was cathartic for her to be able to dispose of him in this manner. Uh, disclaimer, I'm not advocating for vengeful violence against abusers. I'm not saying that a modern survivor should practice vigilante justice. I'm only saying, given the setting and the massive disgusting crimes against humanity Ramsey performed, that this consequence is just and not a perpetuation of the violence. End quote. So that email comes in from Heather uh, to a cast of kings And I thought Heather raised some, some really great points, uh, specifically the point about like what is it that you expect was a healthy response to this, uh, whether in the form of her own emotional reality or in her reaction to Ramsey and what she did to Ramsey. Uh, so just great all-around email, and I wanted to share it uh, with the audience. Any thoughts on that email, Joanna, or should we leave it there? Well, no, I just feel similarly in that, like, I am not here to tell any person, you know, a sexual assault survivor or otherwise, like, how to interpret that scene and you know if it lands some way with some people in a different way with other people i think everyone should be allowed to you know feel however they want about it i think that's fine um yeah and i'm not going to relitigate the ramsey dog thing because i feel like we've been talking about it for years so let's just move on from it let's do one last email this one comes from andrew from denver colorado uh, who writes in, quote, I'm curious about your thoughts regarding the recent trend of writer backlash toward the creator uh, creators of popular film and television. I'm noticing a strikingly, strikingly similar level of backlash from the Game of Thrones fan base towards uh, D&D, David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, as I did towards Ryan Johnson after The Last Jedi. Season 8 has been far from my favorite season, but in my opinion, the worst Game of Thrones is still better than most other TV out there. Uh, that being said, if all uh, you... That being said, if all you did was read the online comments, you would think this was one of the worst shows ever written. Uh, I'm skipping ahead here. When did fandom rise to such a toxic level? 
where if we as a culture deem something to be bad, we demand the heads of the creators. Ryan Johnson has made more than enough cred- inc- uh, incredible works to earn a pass if we don't like his first big budget film. But now anywhere you see his name online, it's treated like a slur. Did we collectively forget how much fun Looper and Brick were or that he directed possibly the single greatest episode of television ever filmed, Ozymandias? Um, anyway, and he goes on for a little bit, but I, I think uh, Andrew from Denver, Colorado is just kind of asking about like what online fandom has become and like how it's become really personal. Uh, mm. And was wondering yeah. if you had any thoughts on that, Joan Robinson. I have so many thoughts on that. I think about this all the time. One of the things, one of the problems that I think about uh, fandom, because I am, I am like on a, on a much lower level than Weiss and Benioff or Ryan Johnson. I'm on the receiving end of a lot of like vitriol online and usually comes from very devoted fandoms. And the things that I've tried to understand from like, why would someone get so angry with me about X, Y, or Z. And I think it has to do with this idea of, uh, you know, this is, might be too much of a digression for this podcast, but this idea of fandom as identity, that like the thing you love becomes you, you, my philosophy is you are not the things you love. <laughs> You're not the fandom things that you love. You are not Star Wars. You are not Game of Thrones. You are not uh, DC comic movies. You are not whatever. And so if someone doesn't like the movie that you like, that is not an attack on you. Uh, but some, a lot of people feel like it is. They feel a pain point around it. If we, if you and I, Dave, say we don't like an episode of Game of Thrones, people feel personally attacked. They feel like we're calling them stupid or that they have bad taste or the things they love, they're wrong for loving it. When we're just simply saying, like, this is how we approach it, you know? Okay, so that's a long road around to say. Um, there, I think I see a slight difference between how Ryan is treated and how Weiss and Benioff are treated Ryan Johnson in that Ryan has a huge online presence. He's constantly on Twitter. And so the attacks I see are like direct, there is a channel to him. I know he uses the mutt, the mute, the mutt, the mute button like liberally on Twitter. But like, if, if you like you and I both like, you know, kind of know Ryan a little bit, he will engage with us a little bit on Twitter. If you've ever been in an engagement with Ryan Johnson on Twitter, your mentions are just a shambles <laughs> of people just being bonkers about Star Wars. Um, why some betting off? Don't we should, have we, we should be clear. A lot of people did not like the last Jedi. That's what's happening. So right. uh, I, I think it's a masterpiece, but it's okay. People didn't like it and that's fine. But, yeah. um, why some betting off don't have our, are completely removed from this. They say they don't pay attention to fan feedback, though I have some questions around that. They, in fact, are slightly combative occasionally with the fandom. They um, don't have any kind of social media presence. They don't give interviews outside of joint emailed interviews to people. So, you know, so they've just like, as much as they possibly can, by choice, and it's a choice I really respect, they've just tried to remove themselves from the conversation. So here's what I'm pretty sure of they do not see any of the memes <laughs> about them that roll around on Twitter or, you know, Reddit or whatever. They're too busy and that sort of thing. The other thing I was saying before we started is that uh, there are, you know, Ryan's a good example of this, but there are ways in which you can, I, I, I was making the point to Dave that like Weiss and Benioff write almost all of the episodes of Game of Thrones themselves. Uh, they've got a couple writers uh, who work with them, Brian Cogman, who we've um, actually had on the show way back in the day, uh, Dave Hill. And then earlier in, in the series, they had a couple Vanessa Taylor and, and um, Jane Espenson, but like mostly 
it's Weiss and Benioff writing almost every single episode. And if they didn't write the episode, they did a hard pass on the episode. They are the kings of this particular castle. They, um, you know, they're directing the finale. They, they are just like, they are it. And so when you are looking for places to put your frustration as a fan, there's only one place to put it. Whereas like in other shows, like, you know, let's say Buffy, I can't think of a good example and I don't need to call anyone out, but like, Maybe you see, let's say this, you see a writer's name in front of an episode and you're like, oh, it's this person's episode. Well, I don't really like what they do. And it's sort of like spaced out a bit more. Whereas with Weiss and Benioff, this is just like, this is theirs. I would say probably the same thing is true of Ryan and The Last Jedi. Anyway, I don't know if that's a huge digression, but like, I think, I think what's true, um, is that it's, it's, uh, it can be a nice relief of tension. There's, there's a David Benioff meme going around that like, brings me a lot of joy because he just said this thing on the after episode where he was like, Danny kind of forgot about the iron fleet, which was just like, it was a silly thing to say, but then it became a meme. And like, that doesn't seem like that mean spirit. It's not personal about David Benioff necessarily. It's just reusing this phrase that he dropped to like add humorous observations about the show. So it's not like, you know, someone telling David Benioff he should go do something. You know what I mean? Though plenty of people do, I'm sure. Anyway, I, I, I take, I take the point though. Um, that was a long answer, Dave. What do you think? <laughs> uh, I, well, I want to share some thoughts on it, but before we do that, we, we need to thank our first sponsor uh, for this week. Oh, okay. And uh, I, I think a, a, the reason a lot of people listen to this podcast is because uh, they really enjoy the Joanna Robins, uh, Robinson theorizing. They really enjoy the dissection of minute details uh, that really can be satisfying when it pays off in the end. And if you are a fan of those things, if you're a fan of those things uh, and a cast of kings, uh, then we think Hunt a Killer is a great yeah. product for you. Uh, what and specifically, right? What Hunt a Killer is? It's it's a murder mystery box that immerses you in an ongoing experience. I, I can't believe no one thought of this sooner. Right? It's basically like for those of you who like dissecting theories uh, for pop culture, for your TV shows, for your films. Uh, this is a perfect product. John Robinson, tell us more about it. Yeah, absolutely. No, you get this box right in the mail and you get to sift through like piles of documents, evidence, case files, eliminating suspects until you crack the case and catch the killer, which is just like, yeah, you're right. I love theorizing, Dave. I love solving a mystery. I always wanted to be a detective. And so I really, really love Hunt to Killer. Um, You can go online and access audio files, security footage, uh, even gin recipes and a themed playlist. So this is like a whole party in a box as far as I'm concerned. Um, And it's, it's like, it's in-person interactive, right? You're not just like staring at a screen playing a video game. You've got physical media to sift through. You can invite your friends over. And then when the mystery is too hard for all of you to crack, because it will be, you can hop online and try to get help from other players. Yeah, that's what's so cool about it is like there's a whole community of people that are doing this along with you, very much like uh, when you're watching Game of Thrones or listening to Cast Kings. Like there's a whole group of people also doing those things. Uh, the same is true of Hunt a Killer as well. Uh, and yeah, we uh, each got Hunter Killer boxes. They are super cool. Like the the materials are like very authentic. Clearly, like a lot of work was put into making them look like actual materials. Uh, it is uh, really impressive, and we think it's a product that a lot of people listening will enjoy. So, John Robinson, do we have a deal for our listeners today? Yeah. So right now, just for our listeners, you can go to huntakiller.com slash kings for twenty percent off your first box. They only accept two hundred members per day. 
So hurry up, take advantage of this offer. That's huntakiller.com slash kings for 20% off your first box. Huntakiller.com slash kings. See if you have what it takes to solve the intricate murder of Charlie McDonough in the newest Hunt to Killer series. Thanks to Hunter Killer for sponsoring us this week. So, John Robinson, to answer your question from before, I do think there is this new uh, era that we're in about uh, showrunners. Showrunner, the term itself, uh, th- that was not always like the term that people used all the time, right? Like, it, it, I remember it kind of taking on a new realm of popularity right around the time when like the golden age of TV kicked off, around the time of like the Sopranos and the Shield, uh, and. I think for good or ill, a lot of showrunners position themselves as the mastermind of the series and kind of the, a spokesperson for the series. Uh, it's extremely common. And many, oftentimes they are like out there on the front lines of Twitter, like responding to people. Uh, I, I think it's just like kind of a, a symptom. What, what this emailer is describing is just like really a symptom of uh, the modern age when everyone feels like their opinion of... Uh, something should matter. And I realize that's um, pretty rich coming from someone who hosts a podcast about <laughs> Game of Thrones. Uh, but it, it's true. Like, hey, like I, I can, I now have direct line into, I can either message the person who made this thing or I can say something publicly and then that will eventually reach the person who made this thing. And of course, if you have that power, how are you not going to use it to express your satisfaction or dissatisfaction? I mean, I think that's just like, Given that that's the case, I, I, I think that the way that uh, the D&Ds stay off social is uh, really admirable, and I salute them, uh, and I, I pray that I would have the strength if I, too, one day made an extremely popular show. <laughs> um, so I, I do also want to call out there's this, this uh, piece that Esther Rosenfeld wrote for Medium that I thought was really great, uh, and it was called, it's called Unletting People Enjoy Things. Uh, why are so many pop culture fanatics threatened by disagreement? Do you have you do you see this piece or you you have you seen this comic that's basically like it's this comic and there's these two people uh, and one of them squeezes the lips of the other person shut and he says shh let people enjoy things. Have you seen this comic? Like it's kind of a meme yeah. that's yeah, like yeah. let people enjoy things. Yeah. And this is the most. Like this is a great take. I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's like a great takedown of this meme, right? Because really, when people are saying like "let people enjoy things," what what Esther Rosenfeld claims, and which I basically agree. Here, I'll, I'll quote from it. Here, it says, "It all comes back to the paradoxical fact that fans of the world's most popular media are intensely insecure in their fandom." Avengers Endgame is on track to make more money than any film has ever made before. So why do fans brigade negative reviews? And what she's talking about is like when someone leaves a negative review, uh, people will like comment extremely negatively, like overwhelmingly negative on a review. Um, and uh, and she so she writes here, people lash out at critics even if those critics are a tiny minority. They can't feel comfortable just being part of a titanic pop cultural movement any suggestion of disagreement has to be eradicated because that mm-hmm. hint of opposition is a reminder that it's possible to not like the thing. And if that's possible, should they? Um, so we see the comic posted everywhere, let people enjoy things. What it really means is you're not allowed to not enjoy things. It's a fundamentally broken way to look at art. Why do so many people perceive a dissenting opinion as a literal attack on affirmative ones, especially in a case where the affirmative opinions are such an overwhelming majority. 
People are so threatened by the existence of disagreement or even just of abstinence in this new pop culture landscape to merely opt out of these massive events is considered snobbish and uppity. Uh, end quote. And, and she goes on, and it's a great, it's a great piece. I won't read the whole thing, but uh, <laughs> I, I did think it was very interesting. It's, it's the, I, I never thought of it that way. That that let people enjoy things is basically you're not allowed to not enjoy things. Uh, when really, uh, I think we should like welcome. Uh, dissenting points of opinion and like let those things challenge your point of view and like a- allow those dissenting po- points of view to like uh, tr- like cause you to turn over your opinions in your head and examine them and see if they're true and like test them and um, I try to do that and I don't always succeed but that's kind of <laughs> my north star so well here's here's my and sorry we'll, we, we will talk about Game of Thrones I promise but like um, <laughs> what? what are we talking about <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th- I think of it this way in terms of Twitter and maybe this is unrelatable to our listeners who don't use Twitter but like you can say whatever you want on your Twitter feed I can say whatever I want on my Twitter feed if you come into my mentions and get mad about my opinion or I come into your mentions and get mad about your opinion that's a problem you know what I mean? And so it's like, in that respect, I say, just let people enjoy things or just let people have their opinions. If I say I didn't really like, you know, Avatar, which I didn't. Right. Yeah. And you love Avatar and you're like, if you want to have like a, a genial sort of like, oh, hey, why didn't you like it? I liked it. It's interesting. Let's talk about that. That's one thing. But if you're like, how dare you? Well, I was like, I didn't come to your, I didn't come to your house. I didn't come into your house to talk. I'm in my house. Right. Right. This podcast and, so and this podcast is our house, basically. This like, is our, this podcast is our house. If someone is a film critic for a website or or a publication and they write a review, that's their house. Yeah. You don't have to read their review. They didn't come into your <laughs> house and slap slap your IMAX tickets for Avatar Two out of your hand. You know what I mean? Like it's it, yeah. you know yeah, go enjoy something. But someone having a dissenting opinion is not getting in the way of your enjoyment. Yeah. So keep okay. all that in mind <laughs> as we as talk we talk about, about <laughs> season eight, episode five, the bells, because you are going to need everything, all the emotional tools we just said. If you're going to survive this podcast episode of uh, Cast Kings. No, oh, everyone's going to be fine. <laughs> we're, we're in the end game. It's all fine. We're Two in episodes, the guys. end game now. Okay. <laughs> so before, before we kick things off, John Robinson, I, I think this is a good, it's a good exercise, I think, to start by talking about all the things we like about mm. uh, this episode, right? Mm-hmm. Like all the, all the things we loved about season eight episode uh, five, the bells. Because, you know, sometimes we can be a little bit negative on the show. And we, I mean, like me mostly. And so let's talk about all the things we loved about this episode. What are, what are some of the things you like? Is that okay if we do, do that first? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's talk about the things um, we loved. Yeah. Great. Um, I loved a couple of major plot lines, actually. Okay. Um, I really liked the Arya stuff. Um, I think it's a little, they, they, it was a little silly that she was even there. They like stretched the plot to just zip her down there because they wanted her in King's Landing. But like the Arya is there for vengeance. Basically like a lot of things would land perfectly with me if given a bit more time. Like in a in an ideal season we have Arya and Sandor the Hound on the road for a little bit before they're at King's Landing. They've had conversations. There's more build up to all of this. Rather than they show up uh, Sandra decides to teach her a lesson about vengeance. Don't be like me. She decides to learn that lesson in the rubble of the city. And then she has this harrowing journey out of the city. I liked all, I like Aria choosing life. I liked Aria trying to get out of the city. I thought we saw 
some stuff from Maisie Williams that we haven't seen since season four in terms of like vulnerability and humanity um, that, that really, really landed well with me. So I, I just really liked all of that stuff. All right. Uh, Anything else you want to mention? Oh, uh, all the things I liked. Okay. Um, I also actually really liked, well, I really loved the Jamie and Tyrion scene. This is obviously the last scene. Well, that's not a spoiler. Um, (laughs) Jamie's dead. Um, This is the last scene between Tyrion or Peter Dinklage and Nicola Coaster Waldo. And you can tell, and Peter Dinklage just like walked up with all of his acting bags packed for this last uh, scene between the Lannister brothers uh, where he talks about like how he wouldn't survive his childhood without Jamie. And they have this really emotional goodbye. Escape. The two of you together. Remember where we met? Where they keep the dragon skulls beneath the red keep. Take her down there. Keep following the stairways down, down as far as they'll go. You'll come out onto a beach at the foot of the keep. A dinghy will be waiting for you. Sail out of the bay. If the winds are kind, you'll make it to Pentos. Start a new life. Sail right past the Iron Fleet and enter a new life. Sounds a lot less likely than Cersei winning this war. There won't be an Iron Fleet for much longer. Do it. If you don't, you'll never see Cersei again. There's a line in there that is wildly out of character for Jamie that I don't like, yeah. but I'm going to... I'm going to walk right past it and say, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly I, what line you're talking about. Yep. Then I also liked uh, the Jamie and Cersei death. I liked them finding each other. I liked this interesting twist on the Valencar prophecy, which I'm not sure is something that we've talked about that much on this show, but it's a prophecy from the book that Cersei would be um, murdered by her little brother. Or, or basically, the prophecy goes something like, when you're drowning in your tears, the Valonqar will wrap his hands around your throat and you will, like, choke and die, something like that, right? Um, and so Cersei, as a child, heard this prophecy. It's not in the show, but it's in the books. And Cersei, as a child, heard this prophecy, and she believed it to be about Tyrion. So she treated Tyrion like garbage her whole life because she thought he was going to kill her. That this prophecy meant her Tyrion was going to kill her. And then book readers thinking they're one step ahead of George R. R. Martin were like, what if it's Jamie and not Tyrion? He is technically her little brother by like a few seconds. He came out of the womb right after her. You know what I mean? So like maybe it's Jamie. What a twist. And then this episode's like, what if one more twist? Jamie's not choking her to death, which I never wanted for him. You know that I didn't want that for, for him. He's like lovingly sort of like cupping her face. And so still his, still she's drowning in her tears. Still his hands are wrapped around her throat. Still she chokes and dies on this debris. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I love a twist on a prophecy. I really do. So I, I really loved it. I thought it was like a great acting. It's exactly what I wanted, which was an emotional acting opportunity for Lena Headey and Nicola Costa Waldo, two of my favorite performers on the show. I didn't want Jamie to go out in a dark place, sort of similar. I mean, I said I wouldn't bring up uh, Sunset and Ramsey and the Hounds, but similar to that, I just didn't want, like, some people think of this as a, um, a ruination of his redemption arc. And we can definitely have that conversation. But what I think would have been even worse for his redemption arc is some sort of like vindictive, dark, violent death scene. I think that would have been really, truly terrible to watch. Um, and this I thought was really uh, poignant and touching instead. A lot of people don't like it. I love it. So yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm stunned right now. Honestly, I didn't, I didn't imagine you would like it. And just, just to be clear, I believe the prophecy says 
When your tears have drowned you, the Valonqar shall wrap his hands about your pale white throat and choke the life from you. You really felt like this episode was a realization of that prophecy rather than, uh, I don't know, disregarding of it? I think it's, yeah. I think that's like the idea that like she follows him, right? And he takes her to a place where they die. So he causes her death, even though he doesn't kill her. Right. I mean, she might've died anyway, but like she follows him down into the tunnels. Cause that's how Tyrion told them to get out. And then they're trapped and then they die. And so Jamie Lannister kills Cersei Lannister, but he doesn't murder her. He like causes her death. I want our baby to live. I want our baby to live. I want our baby to live. Don't let me die, Jake. Please don't let me die. Please don't let me die. I don't want to die. Look at me. Look at me. No one like this. No one like this. No one like this. Look me in the eye. Don't look away. Don't look. Look at me. Just look at me. Nothing else matters. (laughs) Nothing else matters. Only us. Um, Just choke the life from you. That that is the part that I'm like, ah, like... But prophecies should not be like, uh, you know, generally, I think prophecies should not be taken like super, super. Their prophecies are always in literature. They're always tricksy. And there's always some sort of like loophole in them. And and this this, I think, is that just, just, to be um, clear, just to be clear, like, I also love, you know, those I love like the monkey's paw thing where like a wish comes true, but it's like super twisted and like, oh, you get all the money in the world, but you can't spend it or time enough at last. You have all the books, but you don't have glasses. You know, I love that kind of stuff. This is like a bridge too far for me. You know what I mean? Like, this is like, yes, I understand it's not supposed to be literal, but it's pretty unmistakable what that prophecy is supposed to say, uh, in my opinion. So I just wanted to... Give voice to that point of view yeah, at least before absolutely. we before we brush on past that. So there's plenty of people who hate it. I get it. I think it's a really clever way to fulfill it um, and not make me watch uh, Jamie kill Cersei. Um, let's see some of the things that I liked. Um, I even though I don't understand fully. Well, actually, I do because I I watched the behind the scenes making of the episode, but like. Before that, I could not understand why Daenerys sort of snaps when she snaps. And that's a failing of the episode. <laughs> it's a failing of the episode that I had to watch multiple behind-the-scenes interviews to understand what was happening. Um, but the way that Miguel Sapochnik, director Miguel Sapochnik and Amelia Clark kind of described it was like, okay, Daenerys, she's all, we we like, what's clear in the text is that she's all alone in the world, right? Like, no, like she's lost her best friend. She lost Dora. She lost Sandy. She lost two of her dragons. John, like, does not want to see her. Blah blah. We can talk about all the gendered uh, controversy around like a woman and emotions and power and stuff like that. But what we're seeing, according to director Miguel Sapochnik and Amelia Clark, is a woman who, or let's just say, a person who has achieved the thing that they worked so hard towards. And it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. And they just feel alone and empty. 
I find that extremely relatable. I don't think the episode landed it, except for the fact that I think Amelia Clark's performance lands it. I think Amelia Clark is incredible in this very confusing moment in the episode. What she does with her face is something we've never seen her do before. And I thought it was like absolutely brilliant. Um, so I loved that. Uh, I, I think Amelia Clark is incredible this whole season, in my yeah. opinion. Like, mm-hmm. I, she, this is this is the best work I've seen her do in the show, and uh, I am very sad that this is kind of this is the turn that her character has taken, right? Uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, but yeah, I, she's just so good this season uh, in terms of like expressing like the walls closing in on her and and her disappointment and and all. all Everything, all the stuff she's doing with John, the the non romantic stuff that doesn't depend on them having a lot of chemistry, I, I think is amazing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I just think she's she's been great, and I'm I feel that the show has really let her down. Uh, it's particularly well, this episode. So it's it's interesting because when I when I interviewed Nicola Costa Waldo about um, you know this is a piece that ran last week, but it was actually a sort of a repurpose of an older interview. But like he was talking about how accelerated. Um, the show is, which which is no secret to any of us watching, and how he as an actor has to do the work behind the scenes in order to make it emotionally make sense. And I think you, I think you see some of those actors doing that work, and some of them are just like my head spinning. I don't know where my character is, so I'm just gonna like you know ride this wave. What do you need me to say now? Okay, I'll say it. Like that's I, I feel like there's two different approaches at at, at play here. And so Nicolai Costa-Waldo, I think, lands whatever emotion he needs to land for the scene, even if it doesn't entirely make sense because everything is moving too fast. And I think the same thing is true of Amelia Clark. And she told me when I interviewed her for the cover story that we did with her last year, she told me that she kept like this journal every day. Um, she like told me all this stuff when I had no idea what was going to happen to her character. Right. But she was like, she kept journal every day that like all the stuff she was going through was really messing her up. And she just really needed to like understand what was happening with her character and stuff like that. So like Amelia Clark did the emotional work she needed to do to land every single thing that she needed to land in this season, the accelerated pace extremely let her down, I think. Um, Mm. plus like perhaps this plot twist in general, there's no way it could not let her down. But um, but I thought she was incredible. And then is there anything else I want to call it as something I particularly liked? Well, I know you're going to talk about a lot of the technical aspects. So I will just, um, yes, and you talking about that. Uh, yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention about what you just said is, uh, I don't know if you saw Barry this week. I'm, I'm going to, I don't think what I'm going to say is a spoiler, but like, uh, you know, like I'm going to talk about some vague plot details from Barry this week. And there's basically a scene where a character gets a script for an audition. And then he, th- this character needs to then work backward. Like they, they, when they give you the script for, for an audition, they don't give you the whole thing, right? They don't give you like, here's the 150 pages of script. They give you like the scenes that you're going to be reading. And so what they did was they kind of like mapped out, the, they tried to map out the character's journey from like, okay, in scene one, you're like still with your girlfriend. In scene, you know, three, uh, you've broken up, and and so they they, they like are doing like detective work to kind of like piece together all the stuff that happens in between. That kind of is what your description reminded me of, like different actors trying to to get through this season. Um, is right, like, yeah, yeah. They don't necessarily yeah. know like the whole picture, so they're just like trying. The, the people that really work hard at it are are working hard to piece together their character journey, and, and that can be very difficult for actors to do for for a show like this that's so sprawling. 
Uh, okay, what did I like about the show? Uh, this episode, we got to see dragons at their full power. Now witness the, the power of these fully operational dragons. And by dragons, I mean Drogon specifically, the one dragon that's left. Uh, I think from a, a moment-to-moment perspective, the technical aspects of this episode were very impressive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I mean by that is uh, that the CG looked really great. Uh, the combination of CG and practical effects. There were really genuinely bravura sequences. Like one of my favorite shots of this episode is when Arya is kind of with this whole crowd of people in a room of uh, like that they're just cowering and and afraid to go outside. And in one long continuous shot, uh, she exits this room and goes out and then like everyone's mowed down by Dothraki before uh, Dragonfire eventually consumes them. And I was just like, oh my, that is so impressive how they did that shot because it's hard to do it. Like, it's hard in general to go from interior to exterior shot just like to begin with because of like lighting challenges. And the fact that they did it in uh, a scene in this episode is uh, it it reinforces the idea that this is a real place. Oftentimes when they're shooting interiors, it's at a different location than where they shoot exteriors. And, uh, And the fact that they did it in one shot or made it look like one shot is just really, really impressive. So... I think a lot of the technical aspects are great. And of course, Ramin Javadi uh, at the top of his game uh, with mm. the score for this episode as well. A lot of references to uh, past themes and motifs, uh, particularly like The Light of the Seven is a track that, uh, like the same track that uh, played when Cersei blew up the Sept. Uh, you kind of hear uh, variations on that in this episode. So like the music has just been incredible this whole season. And uh, this episode reinforced that as well. There's this kind of like a lot more, felt like a lot more like synth elements in the score of just kind of this ominous like droning uh, that uh, reinforced the terror that these people have. Like there's something coming for you and that like you, there is mm. no escape. Um, yeah. So just like uh, Rami Javadi is like killing it this, this season. And so those are the things that uh, I really appreciated <laughs> about season eight, yeah. episode five. Can I yes and a few of those things? Um, yeah, Ramin Javadi's there's a brilliant blending of the Light of the Seven and Reigns of Castamere as the episode closes out. Yeah. Like you know, oh, yeah. in, so good, so, so good. good. Yeah, uh, in honor of the in honor of the Lannister twins, I would say. Um, and then uh, in terms of the like the sense of being in in a place. Oh, a couple things. One, Miguel Sapochnik apparently told Maisie Williams, like, because there's this tracking shot in um, Battle of the Bastards, right? Where John's in like the melee and there are horses everywhere. And he's like sort of whirling and stabbing and slashing and like grabbing someone to tell them to get to safety. And then they die. And he's just like stunned and trying to move and stuff like that. It's, in this, it's like, that's an episode that I don't love as much as some people do, but that is a stunning shot that happens in that. And Miguel Sapochnik told Maisie Williams, like, we're going to do that, but with you in this crowd, right. he did, he did a lot of echoes to battles of the bastards in this episode. Yeah. Um, and so they did that. And I thought that I, exactly what you said, it was just really amazing. And in terms of like making the interior and the exterior look like they're in the same place. Um, they built Dubrovnik, basically. They built this entire King's Landing set uh, so that they could destroy it, you know? And so, like, Deb Riley, a production designer, had to recreate uh, these back out, al- these stone back alleyways and stuff like that. And it's like, it doesn't look exactly the same as when they actually were filming in, in Croatia, but, like, uh, it's pretty impressive what they built and what they destroyed and the way that they destroyed it and the way they made it look. And, um... You know, for that, you know, I, 
I don't always love to, you know, put heavy emphasis on spectacle. And I would say in some things like like the fight on the staircase, the game bowl thing, like I I felt like that was way too much emphasis on spectacle and I didn't need it. But this like on the streets, people of the streets in a panic, buildings exploding sort of thing that worked, I think, so well. And it's a it's a feature of or it's a credit to the production design team and the VFX and the practical effects and all of those people together. Indeed. Well, we've just reached into season eight, episode five, and tried to find the best of it, right? Tried to find the best of this uh, really uh, controversial episode. Uh, And if you want a sponsor that's going to find the best in you, boy, do we want to mention Upstart, which is our second sponsor for the day. I know. That's probably my, that's my finest work right there. (laughs) Uh, So Upstart.com is a revolutionary lending platform that offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high interest credit card debt. Joanna Robinson, tell us more about Upstart. Um, Okay. I think as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I had my own issues with debt uh, in my youth, in my callow youth. And um, (laughs) I really wish that I had had Upstart.com to sort of help me through this time. It goes beyond the traditional FICO score when assessing your credit worthiness. And they actually reward you based on your education and job history in the form of a smarter interest rate. And it believes that you're more than just your credit score. And that is something I wish I could have heard when my credit (laughs) score was much lower than it is today. Uh, Upstart makes it fast simple and easy to check your rate in just a few minutes without affecting your credit score. And the best part is like once the loan is approved, most people get their funds on the very next business day, the next business day that would have come in handy for past Joanna. I'll tell you what. (laughs) Over 200,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards, student loans, fund their wedding, or to make a large purchase. Free yourself from the burden of high interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. Uh, so where can people learn more about Upstart, Joanna? You can see why Upstart is ranked number one in their category with over 300 businesses on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash kings to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes and it won't affect your credit. That's upstart.com slash kings. Thanks to Upstart for sponsoring us this week on A Cast of Kings. Uh, okay, so... We've got, we've gotten we've spent quite a bit of time talking about all the amazing things about this episode. Let's actually dive into the specific plot points. Uh, the The episode opens with uh, Dragonstone. Varys is kind of uh, writing Raven Scrolls uh, about John being the true heir. There's also this scene earlier on when like a, a child comes into Varys's office, and I think the implication is that Varys is trying to poison Daenerys. Did you get that or? Like, what was your interpretation of that? Because he's like, oh. he's, he's, she's like, oh, she's not eating. And he's like, oh, we'll try again later. I mean, he's either trying to feed her or he's trying to feed her poison. What do you think? Yeah. Someone else had mentioned that to me. And like, I uh, like had sort of discredited it, but um, I hadn't even thought about it. I mean, sure. Let's not, I mean, would we put it past Varys to do that? Probably not. Um, I thought he was just sort of mo- closely monitoring her uh, mental health and her, you know, food intake to sort of be able to speak to her peace of mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, th- we'll try again later. Does sound like poison. 
We'll try again um, later to give her bread. You know, I don't know I, that they would call that out. I really wish, you know, like, you know how Daenerys is like super hungry in this episode and yeah. then she like did all this crazy stuff. Don't you wish someone had made like a really clever mashup of like that and um, I don't know, some sort of like nationally recognized ad campaign and humorously <laughs> posted it online. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you're referring to me, David Chen, right? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very That's nice, right. very nice, yeah. Uh, basically, I, I like, I made a meme last night, Joanna. I made you a meme. You did! I'm so proud of I you. I made a meme, and uh, it got like uh, over 10,000 views, so I'm kind of happy about that. Oh, but we'll link to amazing. it in the show notes. It's basically uh, about how... The the whole Danny plotline is an ad for Snickers, really, this episode. Um, she's hangry. She's hangry. Someone's just given her a sandwich, and a million people would have lived, really, is what I think the uh, the moral of the story is. So uh, I love how you write it here in the show notes. Varys greets John and very ungracefully asks him if he wants to do a treason, uh, which <laughs> is... <laughs> gotta say, I Varys... Think I think I stole that from Reddit. Um, yeah, I was gonna say Varys not at the top of his game this episode. Not on his game. No, no. This guy has survived, in my opinion, far more cunning. Uh, well, I don't know about far more cunning, but like far more vicious kings and queens than than Danny. Well, but he had he had two episodes to try to do a treason in. You know what I mean? Like yeah. and and like other seasons he's had like whole seasons to like send his network going and stuff like that i did like yeah this was not various at the top of the game i did like that moment though when the guards come to get him and he like burns whatever scroll whatever raven scroll he's writing um you know like sort of dumps the ashes in the thing takes his rings off i don't know i just like a, this great little piece of business that i really liked um but yeah various very, very unsubtle in his attempts to win John to his side. And John, who has the political acumen of a thumbtack, um, is like, uh, no, swore an oath. Um, I hate calling John dumb, but like the show writers call him dumb all the time. And so now I just have to accept their version of him, which is this like dumb, dumb honor guy. Mm. Um, you know, but he's basically like, I sw- she's my queen. I swore an oath to her. No, I will not do a treason with you. And not only that, but I'm going to tell Varys what you said. And Varys is going to tell Daenerys, and she's going to be mad. You mean or Tyr- I'm going to tell, tell Tyrion. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tyrion. Tyrion. So yeah. Tyrion tells Daenerys she's been betrayed. She guesses it was John. Tyrion says it's Varys. Uh, Danny sniffs out the whole chain of events, and Tyrion is very preser- uh, perturbed. Like Danny's like, "Hey, not only did Varys betray me, but you t- like uh, John told people, then you told people, and now everyone knows, and I'm really upset." Um, I think this is the only scene like we basically see Amelia Clark without makeup on. Uh, she looks very tired and uh, very kind of uh, she, she's kind of a quarter of the way to a Howard Hughes style, uh, you, you know, person going nuts in their own room type thing. Enough to uh, hint <laughs> at this kind of crazy turn her character takes later in the episode. I don't think so. Um, but certainly this episode, like part this part of the episode tries to lay that track a little bit. Um, it's funny. It's funny because I like posted a photo of her like it wandering around the wasteland desert um, in, yeah. in an fabulous. earlier season. She looks fabulous. Well, no, I, I posted a photo of that from like a previous season uh, being like, you know, without Missandei to braid her hair, Daenerys should show up looking like this next week. And I hadn't even seen the trailer yet. So I didn't know that she does show up looking like nobody's <laughs> around to braid her hair anymore. And like who did it for her when she went to battle? Did Grey Worm have to step up and do it? Mm. Um, basically Good is question. my question. Yeah. But yeah, she's she's looking. It, it's not that Amelia Clark has no makeup on. It's that they put like... <laughs> purple under her eyes yeah, like no. she has she has like 
dark circle makeup on. Um, she looks, uh, yeah, a bit, a bit ragged. Um, and can you blame her? She's super bummed. She's, she's, and what I really loved about the way she played that scene is the paranoia there, which is a huge part of the Mad King Aries. Like when Jamie talks about the way that the Mad King Aries, uh, unraveled he talked about how he saw enemies everywhere so like uh, Tyrion walks in and he's like you know and she's like someone has betrayed me and he's like yeah and she's like Jon Snow and he's like no but it wasn't him it was Varys <laughs> then she's like no let me take you back through a chain of events where everyone has betrayed me and it's like it was I don't know like super relatable I don't know I feel I really feel for Daenerys this is like this is the most I've ever felt for Daenerys because like Daenerys as Amelia Clark is portrayed her like she's you know she's a survivor like there's a lot of things to latch onto there but she's always been like very or at least like since I don't know season three onward like very sort of like austere and like all the stuff in it like inaccessible for me and her unraveling in this episode was much more accessible to me and mm. I was like oh I get it girl I see enemies everywhere too I understand you uh so I don't know what that says about me or your desire to continue working with me but well, it uh, all worked out yeah. for Danny so uh <laughs> that's what I have to say about that um <laughs> so then Varys is taken and then executed on the beach uh and I think there there was a ex- like, actually I forgot to mention the thing this and the things I like I did love that spectacular shot when Danny's kind of in darkness and then you see the dragon emerge from behind her yeah um, that was beautiful and then she kind of like taught like the most casual of Dracarys's she's like Dracarys and you know boom he's he's gone uh so Varys is executed and I, I don't know I, th- this is just the beginning of every the whole problem with this episode can be summed up in like the issues that you start to see with these opening scenes, which is like how badly they just rushed everything. Yep. And uh, the idea that this is how Varys is going to go out. I mean, like you said, he only had two episodes to make a treason and he's usually a pretty careful guy. And for him to just like, it just is like, did he even, what was he even doing? Was he even trying to do something? Like you don't even really get a good sense of his, his machinations, and then, up oh, now he's dead, betrayed by Tyrion, who, by the way, then goes on to do some really dumb shit that would get him killed, that will probably get him killed at some point, too. Um, it just feels like an ignominious end for a character that I thought deserved better, and by the way, you should get used to hearing me say that on this episode of the podcast. So, anyway, Daenerys and Grey Worm uh, burn Missandei's collar, you right here, which is the only possession she brought with her, question mark? What did you mean by that, Joanna? I don't know. She's got a lot of outfits. Like <laughs> brought some, she brought some stuff. I think she she reads as well. I'm sure she brought a book. I don't think the only thing Missandei brought from Essos was her slave collar. Thank you. But anyway, it's fine. It's I do think. Athletic, I guess. I you know I do like uh, a, a colleague of mine said to me like uh, <laughs> screenwriting 101 is that before you kill Missandei you do something to reestablish. Uh, uh, Daenerys' connection to Missandei. Like, that that was a huge miss from last week's episode. Uh, and I, I feel I, like I said that too. Like, that that was sort of like one of my major points yeah. is like, if you want to establish Missandei as this, and like, you know, per our listeners' email, I don't think she was killed just to motivate Daenerys. She's obviously killed to motivate uh, Grey Worm as well. This is a two for fridging. I think I said that on the last week's podcast <laughs> because you see Grey Room go berserk. And the reason he goes berserk is because of Missandei, right? And so, um, yeah, it's a two for. And um, 
and so they focused all their energy on the the relationship between Masande and uh, Grey Worm and not on the like we haven't had a Masande and Daenerys scene like we had one sliver of a scene in season seven where um, they talk about Grey Worm briefly because Masande is like worried he's not coming back and then most of their scenes they've ever shared together one on one and there are very few of them they've been talking about either Grey Worm or John or basically right and so like I said this in the in the piece that I wrote about Daenerys and whether her sort of turn was earned is like when you don't have Daenerys having these intimate guard, letting her guard down scenes with people in the show, which we haven't very much of, then we're not inside her head at all. And so then we don't get her internal monologue. This is all she brought with her when we crossed the narrow sea. Her only possession. So I think some Masende and Daenerys scenes where they're talking about ruling or her family or like coming home or what it means or all of that like seeded back through the episodes uh would have been helpful not only to land miss andy's death better but to help us better understand daenerys and i don't mean to monday morning quarterback but like what seems to be true uh is that all the consistent complaint from from everyone seems to be you're rushing you're rushing you're rushing you're rushing and why but like if you had 10 episodes in both of these final seasons, I think there's room for this Missandei Daenerys relationship to flower even more. Because like what we're supposed to we're supposed to infer that they are the best of friends simply because they are constantly standing next to each other in group scenes. Like that's not good character work. You yeah. Know? There's so little of that relationship in this season of the show. Uh, and that is a shame when the death of one of those characters is going to drive or theoretically be part of driving the massive uh, action that happens in this this episode. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is, did you happen to check out the previously on uh, segment on the this episode of Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they did something on the previously on that I uh, I don't know that I've ever seen before, which is they basically used a... It looks like they used a different take... Uh, uh, or a differently edited take of something that we saw in last episode. It basically like a scene of like Danny looking really angrily towards Cersei, and then they play clips from the mm-hmm. last eight seasons worth of Game of Thrones under her, so that you kind of get a sense of her frame of mind. It's kind of like trying to trying to illuminate like the <laughs> you know the the point of view of Danny, like what yeah. what the books do, but through the previously on right. At the, like, last fucking second, you know what I mean? Like, you can't do that on the previously on that not everyone watches of the episode that you're doing. Um, I don't know that it was, like, a different take. Maybe it was, um, but definitely, like, they edited that audio over it. Um, I, th- I thought we saw Daenerys make that face. I don't – I know. I agree we saw it, but I don't think it was, like – I don't remember it being, like, a, a massive – long take that was that long. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think we might have have cut back and forth is my guess. I'm not 100% Mm. sure. Um, But I think uh, somebody uh, who I retweeted last night like put it really well, which is basically that like, if you need to, um, uh, when the show's previously on montage has to quote earlier seasons to remind you that Danny has a dark side right before she turns to the dark side, you did not do the dark side story correctly. Uh, That was Daniel Silverment. Uh, who tweeted that last night? And I agree. Like they, they're using the previously on to kind of not necessarily retcon, but certainly to be like, "Hey, look, she is. She does have a dark side." And the previously on is going to be a key way of reminding you of that, which I thought was uh, reveal some of the weaknesses of this episode. 
Yeah, and Daniel had a really uh, viral thread about, uh, like, a thread about Game of Thrones that went viral this weekend about why he thought these seasons felt hollow and it had to do with Weiss and Benioff's approach to writing versus George R. R. Martin's approach to writing, which is really thoughtful, uh, very long uh, tweet thread that I suggest you check out. Um, yeah, um, Aziz, who's one of the hosts of History of Westeros, suggested that maybe instead of the bells... Um, which make no sense. Um, <laughs> we should have heard some of those quotes play over that moment for Daenerys in this episode. You know, like um, Jorah saying, you have a kind heart. Oh, not like, because some of the quotes were things she didn't hear firsthand, but I think there are enough quotes that she's heard firsthand so she can remember oh, Lady Olena telling her to be a dragon and Jorah telling her she has a kind heart and like Barris and Selmy telling her something about her father and like all this sort of stuff. Like, so you, I mean, it would be sort of um, premise breaking because Game of Thrones doesn't do that. But yeah, at the same it, it time... It would break the kind of language of a show. I don't think they've ever done anything like that. They've but, done flashbacks, but like... But yeah. at the same time, they broke the language of their own show in order to film the Night King death. They they did a different frame rate than they usually do. They did all sorts of different stuff for that. So if you're going to like break, you know, the language <laughs> of your show for that, like break it for this very important moment. Mm. The, the bells as a seeming trigger, which they weren't the trigger, I don't know does not track, but that, but that previously on is tremendously effective. It is. And so like, wouldn't it be interesting to have had that in the episode? Um, all these things that Daenerys, uh, has said herself or has heard that have led us to this moment. It still wouldn't have like made the moment feel aha, of course, but it would have been better than I think slightly better than what we got or at least different than what we got. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what you're pointing to is one of the weaknesses of the show is that like, unlike, and actually you wrote, you wrote, you actually wrote a great article about this John Robinson, which is that unlike <laughs> the books, uh, unlike the books, the show does not show you the frame, like the state of mind of, of the characters. There is no voiceover. Um, there is no like first person narration as there is in the books. And so when Danny makes that turn, you don't exactly know what it is that set her off. It could be any of a number of things. You know, she just lost a couple of her best friends, right? Uh, Missande and Jora. Uh, she just found out like the man that she loves won't be with her. Um, you know, there, there is, there's like any number of things could have triggered her. And then the, there's these bells, which like, um, Tyrion has already established, like, hey, if you hear the bells, don't attack, which uh, I don't know that we've ever known about that before, um, but certainly this episode really went out of its way to land that the bells are a crucial uh, part of this stra of Tyrion's strategy, at least. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's one of the, the challenges, is, like, if you can't narrate someone's frame of mind, like, how else are you going to show it? And I don't think the show really bridged that gap. But I, I want to get to that moment in a bit, before we do that, anything else before uh, the the big moment in that battle? Um, yeah, I thought, you know what I thought stuck out for me is really weird in, in this episode is um, that like bit of comedy bit with like Tyrion still can't speak Valyrian or whatever he needs to speak to speak to the Unsullied. 
What was like they tried that as comedy in season five, season six, season six, uh, when Tyrion was like left alone in Marine and he could. And I'm just like, he's supposed to be the smartest person on the show. I mean, I forgot that that's apparently Sansa now, but like Tyrion's supposed to be the smartest person on the show, and he he is yet to learn the language of the army of his queen. Are you kidding me? Like, no, that's, it's, uh, you know, I get, I get that they were like desperately trying to like dash a little bit of levity into this, but like, well, uh, not, really not to mention, me out. not to mention that Jamie is somebody who has been captured by Northern armies before and, uh, it's gone badly for people who've tried to capture him. And you'd think that, Hey, maybe you'd say like, don't let anyone in here because otherwise Jamie's going to get free again. Um, uh, he's willing to like murder his own family member to get free. Um, so he's certainly going, like, if Tyrion's going in there, certainly he'll do something. Uh, so uh, it's it just, the th- this episode is contrivance after contrivance, and uh, this he, Tyrion getting into that tent is yet another example, but it would not be the last one of the episode. Um, that being said, you know, there's some good <laughs> things and bad things about that scene. The good things are, like, they have like a heart to heart where Tyrion's like, you're, you know, you're the only person that treated me like a human. You didn't treat me like a monster. Like yeah, that, that's it. very nice, you know, uh, and, and <laughs> a, a genuine moment uh, of emotion between these two characters that I completely bought. Um, but yeah. there is one line that Jamie unleashes that is arguably character assassination, right? Like arguably taking everything we've known I about can't. Jamie and like ruining this character. I don't even know why it's in there. Like, I don't understand. I mean, like, this is the this is the thing is like, I'm trying to give the show the benefit of the doubt in terms of like, it's it's not like the wheels have all fallen off of this. But like, there was an example last week when I don't remember if I brought this up on the podcast, but like Gendry, Gendry is is made a Lord of Storm's End, so he is naturalized as a Baratheon. Is that that the proper use of the word naturalized? Anyway, he's 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 legitimized as a Baratheon. Um. And he's like, he goes to Ari and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm Gendry Rivers no longer. I'm Gendry Baratheon. But like Gendry's bastard last name should be Waters. And like that might sound like a nerdy nitpicky thing or whatever, but it's just like, no, it's, I mean, actually he shouldn't have a bastard last name at all because King Robert never acknowledged him, but there's no way he should be Gendry Rivers. He was never from the Riverlands. And so like, it's like calling Jon Snow, John Rivers. Like it's not right. And I'm just like, you've been on this show for so long. Like how, how does that get through? How does the cup get through? And how does this line from Jamie get through when like he says he doesn't care about the innocence of King's Landing. I never much cared for the people of King's Landing, innocent or otherwise. When like there are multiple instances uh, talking to uh, Brienne, talking to Robert Baratheon in the first season, talking to Kyburn in season three, like where he talks about the fact that he saved the population of King's Landing and how much it mattered to him. Like that's his by, point by of murdering pride. the Mad King, right? We should yeah. say, right? Yeah, he he traded in his honor in order to save the people of King's Landing. That is that is the secret heroism of Jaime Lannister, and they have him say, "I never much cared for the people of King's Landing," and I'm like. That's like saying Sansa never cared for lemon cakes. Like, that's all you care about. What are you talking about? So I just, like, I couldn't tell if it was, like, him putting on a persona of, like, being a devil-may-care Jamie Lee. I just, I I am baffled by it. There's a lot I've already said. There's a (laughs) lot that I loved um, about... Um, you know, all, uh, the Jamie Lannister stuff. But that line, I'm just like, how did that get in there? I don't know. Some people in the chat room are saying, like, we're not meant to believe him. But Maybe. I, I, maybe but, like, why, why would he lie about that when, 
Like, if he's pretending to be, like, like, someone who doesn't care. Yeah, I guess. That's certainly not how I read it, you know, but... um, It sticks out. It stuck out to a lot of people. So I will just say that, like, if that was their intention, it didn't land. And maybe that's Nick's fault. I don't know, but... um, So, uh, you know, I was thinking uh, as they were uh, ramping up this attack on King's Landing that there was, like, this massive encampment there. It's, like, tents and everything. Like, the whole army's there. And I'm like, man, that... All that stuff must have gotten delivered super quickly. And it reminded me of our third sponsor, Postmates. Which do, you think, it, um, do you think Sir Davos was making stew for that entire camp? Just Sir Davos and the stew pot, like serving all those northerners? I think that's right. I think that's right. Okay. Um, okay. But, but you, what, what should he have done? Well, he should have gotten Postmates, which is your personal food delivery, grocery delivery, whatever you can think of delivery service available all year round. Um, tell us more about Postmates, Joanna. Okay, listen. Uh, you don't have to take a trip to the store. You don't even have to know where the store is. That's my favorite line of coffee that's ever been written. I don't know <laughs> where the store. I don't know where stores are. Right? Where are stores? Don't leave your house. I'm serious. Stay inside. No, like, okay. Let's let's say let's say the series finale of a big like pop cultural you know, event TV show is coming up and you've got a bunch of people coming over and you're like, I don't know, rewatching your old favorite episodes or whatever. And you're stressed out and you just need to like not leave the house, go to the store to get food. Why don't you use Postmates 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Postmates will bring what you want within the hour. Anything you're craving Postmates can deliver. They're the largest on demand network in the known universe with more than 25,000 partner merchants. All right. Well, do we have a deal for our listeners today, Joanna? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another favorite line of copy for me. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days. $100. To start your free deliveries, download the app right now and use code COK. That's code COK for $100 of free delivery credit your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Get everything you need anytime you need it. Download Postmates and save with code C-O-K. What's great about having promo code C-O-K is it's so easy to remember. It right? really is. And you just Bro- say C-O-K. You know, like that's, that is how you pronounce the promo code is C-O-K. It just uh, rolls right off the tongue. Rolls right off the tongue. There's no <laughs> other way to say that. Is you uh-huh. just you need to say C-O-K. Uh-huh. Um, so download the app. Use code C-O-K for $100 uh-huh. of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. So thanks to Postmates for sponsoring us uh, on today's episode of Cast of Kings. We get to it, Jonah Robinson, uh, the attack on King's Landing. And uh, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on here, but there's really only like a few things of huge consequence. Uh, f- first of all, Where to even begin? This episode made me so angry. Um, and the the first thing that made me angry about it is it retroactively made me angry about previous episodes of the show. <laughs> oh, no. Because we saw uh, the the power of Drogon just completely annihilate. Like, it, it, tur- it turns out, like, the scorpions and all the, the crossbows, like, none of it had any chance. Like, we finally got to see, like, what a dragon would actually do to these things, which is what we've always suspected. And and it lays waste to these things so quickly and so effectively that it becomes clear that the reason they took out Rhaegal last episode with no consequence, the reason that Euron's men took out Rhaegal last episode with no consequence is just to up, this, up, the, just to be up the tension for this episode, 
no other reason. No, nothing that that's like plausible in this world uh, is like the only reason. Like, hey, they took they were able to take out uh, Rhaegal, and like nothing else happened. Is like, hey, we needed to even the odds a little bit, but not because like dragons actually are if, uh, threatened by anything that these people have to do. I did like the the one like very you know I'm just that's just me complaining about plot machinations but the one <laughs> well, the one kind of legitimate complaint I saw about like so in, in, implicitly I'm saying my complaint is not legitimate but like the one legitimate complaint I saw is that like the idea that stone can be broken using like uh, dragon fire like was this a uh, do you happen to know if this was like a uh, an important point in the books that stone could not be penetrated by dragon fire like do you do you happen to recall that because I saw that that might be a thing, and like basically, Dragonfire can destroy anything in this episode. And I didn't know. Are, if you, are the... you saying there are people out there who are claiming that Dragonfire can't melt steel beams? Yes, uh, Dragonfire can't melt stone <laughs> beams, is what uh, people are saying. Is <gasps> is that a plot point in the book? Who knows? Who knows what Dragonfire can do? Well, no, <laughs> that's not true. So, like Harrenhal. Yeah, okay, that's what I'm saying. Harrenhal. That's the thing, right? Yeah. Well, it's all melty on top because of Dragonfire. So. Um, I would say that they can have an impact right. on um stone. I don't know if it it, it if like it's... melts through it. It like cuts through it like a hot knife through butter in this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, similarly, when Viserion took down the wall that had been up for millennia, <laughs> and Viserion, the undead dragon was just sort of like, "Oh, let me try." Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, the dragons are as powerful as they need them to be. I think yeah. so. Something that Jason Concepcion from the Ringer Binge Mode podcast and, you know, does an After Thrones sort of uh, show has been saying for a long time is that they made a huge mistake at the end of season six by bringing Daenerys to Westeros way too superpowered. Right? She's got three mm. dragons an Armada, the Unsullied, the Dothraki, House Martell, House. So you know, House Essos one, um, the like the the Greyjoys, you know, schism, like blah blah, like all of that. She's just got too much firepower crossing the narrow sea. Then, um, and so then you have to spend the next two seasons sort of implausibly having her get all of that knocked out from under her, thanks to bad advice from Tyrion and you know, some cunning from Cersei and stuff like that. And Euron's like superpowers to be anywhere at all times. Uh, you know, it, 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 it was, they, they backed themselves into a weird corner there. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, we got to knock out one dragon, knock out another dragon. Okay. We need to get it down to just Daenerys under one dragon in order to make it even remotely plausible that Cersei would think she'd have a chance. Uh, in this battle, you know, but that's that's just been a frustration for like two seasons is like Daenerys comes with everything she needs and then it just sort of all goes away. And there's there's a way in which that could be like cool and painful and tragic. You know what I mean? But it it just feels like they've just hopped. OK, let's just um, let's have the army of the dead knock out exactly half of her troops and let's have this happen and let's have that happen. And it just all seems like, I don't know, messy, messy. It all seems messy leading to here. So so they extremely rapidly defeat uh, Euron. I, I, I thought that was the last we'd see of Euron, but nope, he was going to come back for something dumb. Um, and then uh, all the, uh, the scorpions. Golden Company and yeah. the Golden Company. The, the, the Golden, Golden Company, Company. In, in like two seconds flat. <laughs> did, did you ever write, did you, 
write an article or a paragraph about how the Golden Company is going to play a big role in the the final battle by any chance? I'm just curious. I mean, I thought that they would be like a factor. Not like a laughable bit of Tinder. Like what's 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 actually really funny. And like thankfully I didn't sp- spill too much ink on it because like a lot of people thought that the Golden Company was gonna like betray Cersei because of some book lore and blah blah blah. And basically like the show's like book lore. <laughs> we don't have time for that. Um, but they they cast this actor as Harry Strickland, the leader of the Gold Company, and we see him you know like die horribly in this episode. Uh, he had like what <sighs> three lines a season something like that. But he was the only bit of casting news we had. So a lot of people were latching and Harry Strickland is a book character and so they're like oh my god they're gonna do harry strickland how cool it's like no he showed up to wear weird pants and die that's it that's what harry strickland did to put a to to put some kind of recognizable face on the front barely recognizable face on the front line like because a bunch of people were asking me if it was dario and i was like no that's not dario i mean i don't blame you (laughs) like it's fine that you thought it should be someone that you would know but no it's just this guy they cast to read three lines and then die so it's fine I, mean, I do I do like that they kind of build up the Golden Company a little bit and they they basically are a non entity in this like yeah. I do appreciate there's there's this like kind of humor to be had there that like oh this thing that you thought would be uh, at least a contribution just like is taken out in like 10 minutes um maybe so. if they had had those elephants that Cersei was promised you know indeed so let's talk about the crucial moment of the episode John Robinson which is uh, everyone gets killed. Danny has won the battle, right? Like the the throne is hers for her to take. Yeah. And the bells start ringing, and everyone's like, "Please surrender! Like, let's let's lay down our arms and and take the city peacefully." And Danny's like thinking about it, and she looks at the the red keep, and she looks really upset. And what she does next was not even in my consideration set of things that she might do. I was thinking, okay, she might like, you know, call off the dragon. She might go take out Cersei. She might take out the Red Keep and like there might be some collateral damage from that. But in no universe did I imagine that she would uh, murder hundreds of thousands of innocent women and children. Uh, I just didn't think that that would happen. Also endanger her own, like, you know, it's a miracle she didn't barbecue Grey Worm. I mean, like, you know, she might be mad at Jon Snow, but, like, you know, she needs Grey Worm, right? She, like, easily could have got him with the fire. Uh, She's just strafing, strafing, straight up strafing that thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I'm just going to say, talking about this show online is exhausting. Uh, Yeah. And I don't know how you do it every week. Uh, And we won't be doing it for much longer, but I think that one of the most kind of infuriating things about the discussion of this episode online is like, there is a difference. Uh, Lindsay Romaine, actually uh, writer for Nerdist put it really well today. Uh, She said like, there is a, there's a difference between uh, foreshadow. Or she said foreshadowing is not in itself uh, character development, right? That just because the show hints that something might happen, that's not the same as, character development that's not the same as making you believe it and yes you can say okay yeah there have been things that have been foreshadowed that danny might become the mad queen uh there have been a lot of dudes talking about why she might go insane uh but that is not the same as when the moment comes making you believe 
that she would actually have the will to torch all these people. Right. Yeah, the the example that I've been um, using and I wrote about it uh, in that piece you mentioned last night is sort of this idea of what George R. R. Martin does, which, you know, you George R. R. Martin is fond of a surprise, right? He loves a surprise like the Red Wedding or Ned's death or uh, Ober Martell's death or, you know, Joffrey's death or whatever it is. But whenever those things happen, they feel so well earned. And when you go back and look, you're like, yep, yes. I foolishly in the moment told myself that Oberyn Martell was going to win this duel. But if I look at that character and the way in which he was like playing with fire the entire time he has been here, of course, this is how this is going to end. Of course it is. It's just a well-earned surprise. Uh, Weiss and Medieff, or I should just say the writers on the show, in trying to emulate that, don't know how to do it the way that Martin does it, you know, particularly because they don't have all the pages and pages and pages and years and years and years that he's had to lay that track. So they all have opted instead often for shock, um, mistaking well-earned surprise for shock. And um, you see that my, my best example of that is last season with the whole Littlefinger death. They actually cut a scene where Arya and Sansa and Bran were talking about sort of like what they were going to do because they felt like it tipped their hand too much to the death of Littlefinger. And so they wanted that death of Littlefinger to be like this huge, confusing shock of like, oh, snap, Arya and Sansa were working together. But that's shock and it's not well-earned surprise as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it is, I mean... It's, you know, Littlefinger was not going to make it out of that whole game alive. But, like, you know, it's it's a different feeling. And this feels like they did not carefully tend the garden of Daenerys' transformation in order to make this feel like a yes. When Stannis Baratheon burnt Shireen, you're kind of like, yeah. I get, yeah, yeah, I get bud. it. I get it. I like, get it. Makes We've been with sense. you. Yep. We've been with you since season two, and we were rooting for you a lot of the time because we kind of like you. You're kind of this weird, fussy guy, and we kind of like you. But like, yeah, he's, he's for grammatically correct choices. Yeah, you know? I like that. Yeah, <laughs> but this was there. You know what I mean? And that's a that's a George R. R. Martin story. Whereas with Daenerys, I feel like they were sort of obfuscating some of the stuff that is much more heavy handed in the book. And it's not it's not fair to hold showrunners. Uh, show watchers only um, accountable for information that's in the book. And I don't like that book readers are like, well, you know, like, okay, I, I, I practiced this a little bit because I did write a piece in 2016 about Daenerys becoming the villain of the show. And I was using book knowledge to get there. Um, and so it's true that book readers for the most part are, we're better prepared, maybe still disappointed, but better prepared for this moment. But as you and I have had this dynamic this whole time where you haven't read the books and I have, what we've always agreed on is that like, just because you haven't read the books doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to just understand the show on its face. The show should be able to stand on its own. And if it can't stand on its own in this turn without that supplemental book knowledge, then that is a fundamental failure of execution. Yeah. I completely agree. And at this point I, I feel comfortable declaring that like my opinion of this episode is that it was a disgrace. I mean, I think that, uh, the way that these characters, these beloved characters uh, that the show has made us fall in love with, made us invested in for years and years and years, the way in which they met their end felt so unearned uh, that it was, I, I, it was genuinely upsetting to me. You know, like I, 
I have rarely felt as betrayed by a show as I did when I was watching this episode last night. And um, uh, I've been with this show through like a, a lot of things. Like there's things like you said, like well-earned surprises, the red wedding. You know what I mean? Like I'm not against characters taking a turn and characters dying before you think they're going to die. Characters turning evil before you think they're going to turn evil. Like I understand that there is value in surprise, but this is such a dramatic uh, about face. Everyone's get, like, I've seen a lot of people saying, no, it's foreshadowed for years. And it's like, again, foreshadowing is not the same as character development. And like making you believe in the emotional reality of that moment is not the same as some offhanded references that she might be going mad. Like I, it just, they are not the same thing. So it's not that, it's not the idea of Danny turning insane that I have a problem with. It is purely the execution. It's purely how rushed it felt this season. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, so. I felt the same way. I felt the same way. This is a much like lower stakes thing, but I felt the same way about um, Jamie Lannister leaving Brienne. Yes, of Tar- exactly. I was just like, exactly. Same, I completely, exactly. I completely see this happening. Not in the span of a single episode. You didn't yeah. do your work to get here. Yep. And yep. I feel the same way about Daenerys. Is like I definitely believe that George R. R. Martin, when he sat down with Weiss and Benioff in that hotel in Santa Fe and told him like some shocking things, I believe he was like, and in the end, Daenerys becomes like her father, the father that she did not want to emulate. She wanted to be a liberator, but she falls prey to, you know, the the weaknesses of the Targaryen bloodline. She becomes a villain and is pitted again, you know, having created this love story with Jon Snow is then pitted against Jon Snow uh, in the end game. And, uh, you know, so I, I like definitely believe that that is a George R. R. Martin story. It just wasn't told well enough. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it, it, it's just super upsetting to see it happen in this way, you know? Um, and then like we, we haven't even talked about and, you know, because uh, if I'm going to get like backlash for being uh, preoccupied <laughs> with gendered issues, I might as well talk about Just them. Just go all um, the way. Just go all the way. Do it. You cannot remove the gendered optics from this, especially when you have like Cersei emotional versus Daenerys emotional. You cannot remove the implication that women are too emotional to rule, to have power, to wield power, especially when this episode ties Daenerys's snap here to John's earlier sexual romantic rejection of her. That's like a woman's sco- like there's the joke that's going around is like, well, if John Snow had just slept with her could have saved the kingdom. I'm like, Ooh, I hate that. I really hate that. I really, really hate that. Um, it is so, definitely implied that that's the case, right? Like, absolutely. If absolutely Hitler had just gone into art school, you know, <laughs> if, if uh, I think the, the, uh, the one that I saw was like, if Danny had just gotten some dick, she wouldn't have turned into Osama bin Laden, basically. Um, ah, it's awful. I hate it. I hate it. And the show alley-ooped that up for, like, you know, the internet to dunk. And I just, I really fucking hate that. But, like, what, do, it's fine to have these tragic fall of from grace for characters that we have been rooting for. I think that's a fine thing to show us. What's tough I think for like Daenerys is actually, I mean, anyone who's listened to this podcast for years knows Daenerys has never been like a huge favorite of mine. I've been hit or miss on Amelia's performance, even though I thought she's, she, I agree. We both agree. She's tremendous this season. I've been hit on miss her performance. I don't care. I've never cared that much about that character. That's just how I've related to the show. 
But there are people for whom Daenerys, and especially women for whom Daenerys is a hugely important pop culture figure in terms of like this story of a girl who was like abused by her brother, sold off into like sexual, like, you know, marriage slavery, basically sexually assaulted and then sort of like rises up and becomes her own power in the world. What that means to so many women and men as well who watch the show, it's, it's not something that I've particularly connected with, but it is something that people have really powerfully connected with. And so you need to be, I think, careful with something like that. And I don't think they were careful. They were going for like blunt shock and not a nuanced depiction of, of something else. And, um, you know, I, I, I said, this is kind of a joke in the article that I wrote last night, but I mean it like the people who have Daenerys Targaryen tattoos, the people who named their daughters Daenerys or Khaleesi, like that's awful. (laughs) That's awful for them. It really is. I don't mean to laugh through it. Like this is a hero for them. And I like, you know, uh, earlier we started this podcast by cautioning against fandom being identity. And I would caution anyone against like making a fictional character, their like identity, but the way in which we can have people inspire us and like, you know, fictional or otherwise, and like light a path for us, that is what Daenerys has been for people. And so it's, it's, it's heavier than, um, than just any other like fall from grace of a character. Like Jon Snow, I would argue, does not have that a much emotion around him from the fandom the way that Daenerys does for a lot of people. So, yeah, and and but even despite that, I, I don't think that like just because people like I, I agree like uh, if I think uh, some something like twenty five hundred people named uh, their kid Khaleesi in the in the last year, uh, and I agree that you know just because that's true doesn't mean like therefore she must have a happy ending like i i don't no, think i don't think I that she that. needs to be ultimately the good guy but if she's going to be the bad per- if she's going to be the villain you need to like honor that in some way you need to like make that transformation uh deeply felt need you need to, to make it or you need to earn it and this you need to take uh, it more seriously than like what feels like a rug pull you know yeah, or right? like a, a spur of the moment decision that doesn't even change after mm-hmm. she's like murdering people left and right. I mean, I, you know, I, I need to give like some mild credit in the sense that uh, this episode does interestingly offer the first clear articulation of what uh, Danny's motivation might be for torching everything. Right? Like she's like the mercy that we're showing is not mercy of these people, but like mercy to future generations who no longer need, need to live under tyranny. And the, the thing that uh, I'm disappointed by is like, there's so many things you could have done to better illustrate that moment, right? Like um, maybe the people like call out for Cersei's help or they're rallying around Cersei or like they express, you see, you cut to like shots of them, like expressing hatred of her or I, I'm not saying that would have been elegant, but I'm just saying like, it would have been something more than what we got, which is almost nothing, as she just kind of like decides to turn around and just start torching everything. And uh, I'm just so hugely disappointed in in how this went down. A few episodes ago, there was like this this uh, article that came out at Wired about like uh, the case against watching the rest of Game of Thrones, and I was like, this is ridiculous. Why would you quit at this point? And this episode almost made me feel like that oh. person had a good idea. 
Like, okay. I mean, come on. We're in the final <laughs> season. We're so close. That's, I think that's silly. Yeah. I mean, well, uh, obviously uh, you and I are going to go the distance, but I just mean like, wow. Like the way this episode treats like the, the uh, specifically Danny's outcome and also the Jamie um, uh, Cersei outcome. Like I know you actually liked it, but like, uh, okay. So. Sorry, you were going to say something, but I'm going to go on another rant after that. So what were, what were you going to say? <laughs> well, I will just say really quickly, I will take a knock at uh, all the articles that came out after the Battle of Winterfell being like, Game of Thrones has lost its nerve. It's not. It doesn't kill characters anymore and blah, blah, blah. And you were like, Joanna, I thought you would agree with me on this. And I was like, I happen to know that a lot of people are going to die this season. So just be patient. Um, so here we are in the, in the deathly end game. Okay. But you're going to go off on a, on a Valencar rant, I guess. Well, the J I mean the Jamie Cersei story. So first of all, Clegamble happened. Oh yeah. Okay. Here's, here's what I'll say about this. I hate Clegamble. I've always yes. hated Clegamble. Um, I hate Clegamble because the mountain is dead. And so like the hound is pursuing like a shadow of nothing that being said. And so when I heard that, uh, and I heard in advance that they were going to do Clegamble in this episode. So when I heard in advance, I actually pre-wrote this whole article about how much I hate Clegamble and like, I hate that they're doing it. I hate that they're devoting all this time to it. And then I saw the execution in the episode and the way in which it was tied to the Arya story. And specifically the way in which Miguel Sapochnik made a decision. And this was his decision. It was not in the script. In the script, it's supposed to be Clegamble is one thing and Arya's journey through the city is another thing. And Miguel Sapochnik decided to cut them together in one of my favorite sequences of the episode, which is the hound being battered and Arya being battered at the same time. I thought that was tremendously effective. And I changed the piece that I pre-wrote to be like, okay, they made it matter. I thought this was going to be just stupid. They made it matter. I still think it's, they spent way too much time, way too many like digital effects, way too many prosthetics on that poor actor to deliver something that I think went on way too long. and was kind of silly. And like Weiss and Benioff in the behind the scenes episode, they're like, we, we all want these characters to fight. And I'm like, do we? Like, I don't. Yeah, Grace. Hello, big brother. This was like... This is a fa this is not even a book theory. This is a fan theory. This is like a show watcher, well, a little bit of a book book reader fan theory that like Sandor and Gregor would fight. So when Weiss and Benioff say they don't listen to the fandom at all when they do things, I'm like, okay, except you made Clegamble, which is a thousand percent down the line fan service. That's what that is. So uh, anyway, that's my Clegamble rant. It just felt like this episode was adding insult to injury with Clegamble. Um because uh, I, I could not have been more emotionally disconnected from the stakes of Clegamble. As you already pointed out, it's not really his brother anymore. It's like a shambling corpse version of his brother. Right. Uh, and it, it, it is framed as the culminating fight of the episode. And it's like, if you asked, you know, 10 people, uh, Game of Thrones fans, like, w what is the most, like, the plotline you are most invested in? When for the attack of King's Landing, uh, I I'm fairly certain most of them would not say the Clegamble, right? I'm I'm fairly certain like Clegamble is like a fun little thing, side thing. It's like a it's uh, like a thing that people a lot have been of nursing. people 
a lot of people have been really excited about Cool Game Ball. Like okay. I'm, I'm a total stick in the mud about Cool Game Ball, but a lot of people have been excited about this. Okay, so, that, that's fair know. enough. So maybe my like survey of ten hypothetical people is not a good way to do it. I'll just say for <laughs> me, I couldn't give a, a, a shit about yeah. like it just doesn't. The, and I'll say this: the reason for that is because I think the show has done extremely little to get you invested in Cool Game Ball. Right, like. It's not. It's referenced a few times throughout the course of the series, but it's not like something that like it's. It's not like Arya's list, right? That she's right. like repeating over and over again for like many many episodes. That's something that you are invested in, and that all of a sudden, like after you know traveling with the Hound for weeks and like having Cersei on her list for years, at the doorstep is is turned away. She's like, oh yeah, you're right. I guess uh, I guess I shouldn't do this. I mean. I can buy that that's a good arc for that character, but the again, the execution, the rushed nature of it, the way in which it happens, uh, do, did a deep disservice to to Arya and uh, her whole revenge plotline. And we talked about this a little bit a couple episodes ago about like what is Arya's arc, and ultimately the arc, right? At least in this episode, is that she realizes, hey, revenge is not the best thing. I have a feeling she's going to find her appetite for revenge next week, but. In this episode, it's like revenge is not the best thing, and uh, but the way in which it happened was so artless, uh, and so like j- j- felt like we've been just wasting time with that character for most of this episode and parts of last episode. Uh, that yeah, I don't. I, I'm not. I think I'm not as negative as you are on this episode, and that's okay. Yeah, uh, for us to have different takes on it, but. Um, I honestly think it's so funny because uh, I was talking to a friend of mine who also covers Game of Thrones and we've been sort of like emotional support for each other. And like, we're both very spoiled on the end of the series and have been spoiled. And like, I think knowing what this episode was going to cover in advance actually helped me because I was braced for the worst. And then I was like, oh, I'm finding things to enjoy. So I think this is like a case where like being spoiled <laughs> really helped me like come at this episode with like tr- determined to or, or surprised to find it was better than what I was reading on the page, which was like Daenerys hears some bells and snaps. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what are what are the bells? Why? It doesn't make any sense. And then I watched it. I was like, okay, this still doesn't make sense. But Amelia Clark is doing some great stuff with her face. So I'm I'm here for it. You know what I mean? Like I pre-processed the bad and and was focused on the good so yeah. i don't know well maybe listeners people, can decide what the better way maybe of... <laughs> people should spoil themselves to the finale is what i'm saying like mm. not we're not going to spoil anyone on this podcast we have a very strict policy but i'm just saying i found it a very helpful way to process episode five and if you want to maybe pre-process episode six that might be something you could do I cannot advocate for uh, for doing that, but you know, fair enough. Uh, I, I I don't. I also don't invalidate your experience. So, uh, all right. So the last thing we got to talk about is Jamie and uh, Cersei, right? I think that in in this episode, first of all, Euron shows up at the at the exact moment that Jamie is getting to the the Red Keep. And they have this. Oh, uh, a, fr- a friend of mine suggested that Euron was just like sort of hidden behind the rocks and just like was springing out and saying Kingslayer to whoever passed by, like waiting for Jamie. Because the timing of that is very silly. Anyway, go ahead. It's so silly. And then they have this dumb fight. And I, 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 like at this point, I'm already like pretty upset. Like watching the show, I'm already like, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe like. All my hopes and, and dreams for this show are being consumed along with the men and women of uh, 
of King's Landing by Danny's uh, Dragonfire. And the the concept that Jamie might meet his end uh, because of Euron Greyjoy randomly appearing on a beach next to him was almost too much for me to handle. I was like, this cannot be the way Jamie goes out because uh, I will never forgive the show. Thankfully, he survives long enough to... Uh, find Cersei, and then she kind of she has a last moment with him, and uh, by that point, I'm already like so ups- like not really you know connected with the show that I, I don't think I could really make a uh, ju- a good like impartial judgment about the final Cersei uh, Jamie stuff. But what what did you think of like Jamie and Cersei's final moments, and her her said. like breaking down and like showing weakness and stuff like that? That all felt right to you, yeah. I mean, I liked it. It's okay that you didn't. <laughs> it was okay. It, it was. It was. It was like I. I believed it. I believed it. The thing. I, the thing that I don't understand is the pregnancy thing. I still don't understand it. I just don't. I don't. I like. I'm worried that the reason that Cersei's pregnant at all is to like make her seem more sympathetic or vulnerable or or something like that. And that does not sit super well with me. Um, But I don't really understand what that whole plot was for. Otherwise, um, the best thing I can think of that someone suggested to me is that maybe it's supposed to be a parallel to Daenerys' mother, Rayla, when she, like, when the city was under attack from Robert's Rebellion, Rayla, who was pregnant with Daenerys, was like smuggled out of the city through the crypts through the same way. So it's just sort of like this is how Daenerys escaped was like an attack on the city was like inside her mother's belly, like through um, the crypts. And Cersei with with a, you know, with a belly full of child was trying to take the same route and didn't make it. So like maybe that's a connection, but like that's me grasping at straws. Otherwise, I just don't really get it so yeah um, <laughs> but i like but but emotionally performance wise once again i think that that uh lena and uh lena Heaty and nicola custer waldo two series long mvps for me uh went out really well as as jamie and cersei lannister so i liked it uh i, I should have mentioned this earlier uh katie rich from vanity fair tweeted i have nothing good to say for euron but going out insisting he won the fight is extremely on brand uh, which I agreed with that uh, uh, Euron being like I killed the Kingslayer, you know that that was a good uh, good moment for him, even though that character is a disaster. Um, so the Cersei Jamie stuff, uh, they die. Uh, there's some, I actually saw some people like speculating that, that maybe they're not dead, but I think it's pretty clear from the show that they die. Um, and you know that's all that's all she wrote for uh, for. Jamie and Cersei, I think that, like, again, the the idea of them starting, you know, as like these tragic uh, lovers and then ending up in each other's arms as the red keep crumbles around them. I love the concept of that, uh, but the contortions that the plot needed to take to get Jamie to that point, I don't know if I uh, bought that. You know, like I, I, I like. Jamie's whole arc of like, hey, he's he's getting better, he's getting better, he's becoming a good person for like years, and then all of a sudden, oh nope, I got to go back to Cersei, my drug, uh, and all in the course of like an episode or two. I don't know. I just uh, I didn't really buy it. So <laughs> anyway, final thoughts as we wrap up here. A few other things we didn't mention uh, that occur in this episode. 
right? There's a scene where uh, John stops a rape that one of his men is about to inflict on someone. Uh, Arya tries to save the woman and the little girl, but uh, possibly gets them killed instead when they're consumed by dragon fire. At the end of the episode, she finds a white horse and rides off, uh, presumably, potentially, to murder uh, Danny next episode. Who knows what's going to happen? I, I have no knowledge. I'm just speculating. But any other overall thoughts on this episode, Joanna, uh, as we wrap up here? Um, David Chen, we made it so far. And we're almost there. I will, well, here's what I will advocate for people. People are really wound tight about this. Um, because, and I understand, because this is like a big thing that we're all watching together. Uh, if it brings you joy to argue about this online, then, uh, or yell at us while you're listening to the podcast, then that's great. But if this is not bringing you, it's not to, to uh, borrow a phrase from Marie Kondo, if this is not sparking any joy in your life to yell about this online or, or with your coworkers or with your family or whatever, just don't. It's a TV show. It's fine. You know? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like how your closing advice is feel free to just emotionally disengage with this <laughs> i don't know maybe that's for the best i don't know yeah I, just, uh, just do whatever makes you happy and if this is stressing you out don't let it stress you out you know if this meaning what listening to the podcast or watching the show or uh, watching the sh- watching the show any of it whatever yeah if any of it's stressing you out life is too short our real world is terrible uh so you know <laughs> Yeah. Find joy. I'm really like, that's why, I mean, this is not a plug again because we're sold out, but that's why I was like determined to have this live show after the finale because I was like, I just want to be around the community. I love the Game of Thrones community. And so, like, I'm so excited to like hang out with our listeners in San Francisco. That's what I want to do. I just recommend you find some like, you know, place to watch the finale. If like it's, if it's at home with your loved ones, if it's out in a bar with some people, whatever it is, just like be with people and don't like just read all the discourse online. Cause it's so agitated and toxic and just like, just, you know, if it's, if the ending is bad, let's just all have a laugh about it together. Cause I don't know. <laughs> it's just like, what else are you going to do? Yeah, I no, I think that's all very fair. Uh, I'm very grateful to have my like little discussion group at work to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people shared my, my thoughts, but some people also really love last night's episode. So yeah, plenty of people did. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, it's all a rich, beautiful tapestry of everyone enjoying things in a different way. And, uh, I do welcome it all. You know, I do welcome hearing the other points of view, uh, and and seeing like seeing if they cause me to reconsider my own. I, it was also pretty hilarious, Jonah. Today I had like multiple people like pinging me in a row. Like one person pinging me, being like, "Hey, so uh, what'd you think of last night's episode?" I was like, "Oh, I really didn't like it." And then another person pings me, and they're like, "Hey, so I heard you spoke with so and so about the episode. Like, uh, what'd you think of what happened to Dan?" You know, and I just had this like string of people like pinging me, being like, and I had to like then repeat myself and say like, "I thought it was bad. I thought it was bad." Um, and that was amusing, but I agree with what you're saying that there is more important things than this show or this podcast. Uh, and if you are finding it doesn't spark joy, if you're finding it's not a zesty enterprise for you, uh, then definitely uh, <laughs> disconnect. Take a walk, uh, go out and enjoy the world, and uh, that's it. So, I uh, I was extremely disappointed. That being said, I was extremely disappointed by this episode, and have extremely like little hope that they're going to wrap it up in a satisfying way next week. Uh, <laughs> how about you? Are you like? Are you like? Is your confidence inspired for next week? Like, what are your thoughts? I'm on actually next week? my spirits are up because I have been so stressed 
about this final season of Game of Thrones for I can't even begin to tell you how long. Um, and I'm just starting to feel a lightness inside of me because yes. it feels like it's almost over. It's you know almost I mean? over. It's so, amazing. Yeah, I just like, you know, and I don't mean that in a like terrible way like I, I hope it ends in a way that we're all satisfied with but I'll, I know that like I won't have this crazy like loose sleep experience uh very you know soon I will not have that anymore uh so that'll be really nice yeah I mean you've been studying this show intensely for like seven eight years uh so it's all gonna come to a conclusion and there is like some relief in that uh but anyway Let's wrap up. Next week, we'll be back to talk about the series finale of Game of Thrones. And we'll also have a little bit of uh, uh, time after that to reflect on the show as a whole and the podcast as well. Hope you'll join us for both of those episodes. In the meantime, Jonah Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? Uh, you can find me talking to the aforementioned Katie Rich on the Still Watching Podcast or Vanity Fair. You can find me on Storm of Spoilers, where we are going to start watching Lost this week, as well as wrap up our Game of Thrones coverage. Find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This or at VanityFair.com. Find all my stuff at DaveChen.net. You can subscribe to my emails at DaveChen.net slash letters. And also my YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash DaveChensky, DaveChensky. I host a couple of other podcasts, including... The Slash Filmcast at SlashFilmcast.com and also Write Along, a podcast about writing and the creative process at WriteAlongPodcast.com. That's W-R-I-T-E. Uh, find more episodes of this podcast at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Email us at AcastOfKings at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Baby Zhang. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on A Cast of Kings. And also, oh, thanks also to our sponsors this week, uh, Hunt a Killer, Upstart, and Postmates. Uh, big shout out to them. We'll see you next week. <laughs>